0: And if you caught the subtitle, it said Lent and following Jesus to the empty tomb. So the purpose of this series is to explore what it means to follow Jesus. And in the tradition with Lent, examine the ways we've fallen out of step with Jesus and respond to his invitation to to follow him in sacrifice and, and self-denial. So, so we're entering into a, a season of, of Lent. Lent marks kind of the 40 uh, days before Easter in a brief background on Lent. Uh, in, in the historical Christian calendar, uh, Lent is a season where followers of Jesus remember Christ's temptation in the wilderness. Uh, this period was marked by fasting, and for the believer, it's a season of really posturing our hearts towards repentance Repentance and Renewal, uh, the 40 days leading up to Easter. Uh, It is a time of reflection. It is a time of uh, examining our own mortality and our own hearts and how they can drift from Jesus and then respond by turning to Jesus. Uh, it it, It is a brief season to reevaluate, recalibrate, and clarify the values of our heart. Paul Tripp says, Lent is about remembering the suffering and sacrifice of the Savior. Lent is about confessing our ongoing battle with sin. Lent is, is about fasting, but not just from food. Uh, we willingly and joyfully let go of things uh, that would have too much hold on us. And Lent is about giving ourselves more focus to prayer, crying out for help that we desperately need from the only one who can give it. So in this series leading up to Easter, because Easter is really just right around the corner, uh, we're slowing down to respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him, to reevaluate to recalibrate and clarify the values of our heart as we align ourselves with King Jesus. So our time in the Word this morning will mostly be in Matthew chapter three and four, the the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four. So we're going to look at that together. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, I want to invite you to raise your hand. Our team is going to be handing out Bibles. I want to encourage you to look at the scriptures with me. So if you want to quickly shoot up your hand, we can put one in your hand, uh, and that is yours to keep if you so choose to, take it home with you. We got, uh, we'll got. we be handing out Bibles uh, right now. So uh, I want to invite you to join me uh, to look at Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to read this all over again. Uh, Matthew chapter three sixteen. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up By the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry as he should be. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. With the remaining time we have together, we're going to answer these three questions together. If you're taking notes, the first is, What kind of person are we following? The second question, What is he doing? The third question, Where is he taking us? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that at this time as we look into your word and worship, I pray that you would move our hearts to respond to the word. I pray that you would reveal parts of our lives that have gotten out of step with you and that in your kindness would you call us to repentance so that we can find the grace and the help we need in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First question, what kind of person are we following? Verse 16 says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well. Please. When you walked in, you saw the baptismal vessel outside, AKA the Texas horse trough. And uh, we're believing that this moment is going to happen today. And maybe not in, this exact way, but it's going to be a glorious moment of transitioning from death to life. But the way this happens is Really significant. Uh, this is the grand introduction that Matthew gives us to Jesus. In the first few chapters of Matthew, we get some history and some background on who Jesus is. We get a a lengthy genealogy. We hear that, that he, uh, his family flees to safety in a foreign land. And then when they come back, Jesus is all grown. And, and, and what we see happening here is this is really the first movement we see of Jesus. His first interaction. He is walking, and and what we're seeing here is that we're not just reading about his life, we're seeing what he is doing. And the first thing Jesus does is he goes to the river to be baptized by John. But But wait, I... I thought baptism was this significant moment in the life of a believer that publicly displays their commitment to follow Jesus and turn from sin. That's what we're celebrating today. Uh, people who have said yes to Jesus and are entering into a relationship with him as they've turned away from their sin and are publicly displaying their new commitment to Christ. That's what baptism is about. And, and Paul teaches uh, that baptism, we are, identify ourselves in the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we are immersed in the water, it symbolizes that we are dying to our old self uh, that was identified with sin and without Christ. And as we come out of the water, we are raised to new life in Christ. This is the very thing we're going to celebrate. But in this moment, Jesus is getting baptized. This doesn't seem right. What kind of person are we following here? Well, earlier in the chapter, John says that his baptism is a baptism of repentance. What does this mean? In other words, he's calling the children of Israel to turn from their sin and turn their hearts back to God, and their baptism was a loud declaration of their heart change. But what does Jesus need to repent of? Isn't he God in the flesh? Isn't he the perfect one without sin? What sin has Jesus committed that he would need to foster his heart towards God in repentance? And John the Baptist knew this. And that's why he says in uh, verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to get baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. This is a significant moment because what we see happening is Jesus beginning his kingdom work. He is about to reverse the effects that sin has on humanity. He's about to push back the kingdom of darkness. He's going to overthrow the oppressive demonic powers that enslave God's people. He's about to bring long-awaited hope and healing to the broken. And most importantly, he's going to bring people that were lost in sin back to the Father. And he begins this work. He begins his ministry by identifying with the human need for a savior. The human need for righteousness, right standing with God and the need to be right with God. And he presents himself as the only one who can meet this need for us. What kind of person are we following here? The God man who identifies with the needs of his people. So much so that he would willingly humble himself and be baptized uh, on display for the very need that he's going to fulfill in our hearts righteousness, right standing before God. There is more. We continue reading in verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What kind of person are we following? The beloved son. And this statement is overflowing with biblical significance. This description is actually the fusion of two Old Testament texts. The first part, this is my beloved son, comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 through 7, written centuries before this moment. And it says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In this text, the king of Israel is addressed as the son of God. And and what is so significant about the king? Well, the king was supposed to rule and reign the land, execute justice, lead God's people into peace and prosperity, and protect them from oppressive forces. In fact, there's a whole book about kings in the Old Testament. A few of them good, most of them bad, terribly bad. And yet in the midst of this scandalous history of disappointing kings, there was a profound expectation and hope for the Messiah king. A king that was different because this king was the son of God. Israel, however, wanted a conquering king. They wanted a king that looked like the rest of the nations, kings that violently overthrew oppressors by force, kings that did whatever it took to, to protect and, and, and ensure peace and prosperity, a, a king that would ensure that they would no longer uh, become enslaved by neighboring nations, a king powerful enough to drive back the forces of darkness and create peace and prosperity, a son worthy of David's inheritance. King that would slay Goliath, a king that would restore Israel. And Jesus would drive back the darkness, but not by violently waging war against the enemy, but by laying his life down on the cross. He wasn't the conquering king, he was the promised king. Jesus would drive back the oppressive forces of darkness, but he wouldn't do it in the way that we expected, but in the way that we needed. But this is only half the message. He goes on to say, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, first part, with whom I am well pleased, second part. Uh, if you found yourself in this ancient setting and you grew up with a hopeful expectation for the Messiah's arrival, you would have been familiar with the scriptures that spoke prophetically about the Messiah's character. What would he be like? What would he do? What would he look like? And for and the first aspect of the Messiah's character was the most familiar and the most anticipated. Israel wanted a king. They wanted a conquering ruler. Yet there was a second aspect of the Messiah's character, uh, his identity that was often overlooked. And this is how Isaiah describes them in Isaiah 42, one through four. Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. You see it? This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. And moments later, the spirit of God descends. 700 years before this, Isaiah writes this down. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So when we see this is my beloved son, uh, this takes us to this place in, in uh, to, to Psalm 2. But when the description with whom I am well pleased, that takes us to Isaiah 42, an entirely different part of the Old Testament. And what we see is not a king in this description, but a chosen servant. Isaiah would call this servant, the suffering servant. Here's how he describes Jesus in Isaiah fifty three, three through six. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, he was and we esteemed him not. This is the beloved son. This is our king. Who are we following? The suffering servant. The God who is all too familiar with your human experience, willingly allowed himself to be afflicted by the same grief and the same sufferings that we all experience so we can find hope and life in the God who relates to us and we can remain hopeful and find victory despite our grief and despite our sufferings. The suffering servant who will suffer abuse and opposition for all who've experienced the abuse and oppression of sin. The suffering servant who will suffer a gruesome death, death on the cross for the sins of the people. And hundreds of years before this moment, Isaiah prophetically speaks, I will put my spirit on him. This is what happens next in verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. The king doesn't just come to conquer the enemy and overthrow sin. He will do that. The servant comes to bring people back into relationship with God by undoing the effects of sin and forming a new creation. So who are we following? We're following the servant king. The suffering servant who has come to undo the effects of sin, whom the Spirit has descended upon the way it was hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis 1 upon creation, he is now in our midst recreating and forming a new creation. The suffering servant who is so acquainted with our grief and with our experience, so much so that we can relate to him and find hope and refuge in him in such a way because he's experienced all of our temptations, all of our grief, all of our sufferings, and has overcome So that when we attach ourselves to him, we can find grace in times of need. Who are we following? The servant king. Question two, what is he doing? Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After having this glorious exaltation, this wonderful moment, the triune God in, 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 in one moment in history interacting with another, the heavens parting, the affirmation of the sun. You would figure we would go out to eat after this and celebrate like I knew it. It was you the whole time. Salt lick on you, you're buying. That's not what we see happen here. This great moment of glory. Transitions into a brutal moment of temptation. He is baptized and he immediately goes into the wilderness. And there we witness a cosmic conflict underway as Jesus brings the kingdom of God to invade the kingdom of this world. He is bringing the kingdom of God to invade the kingdom of this world. Grant Osborne points out that in the ancient world, all sons of the king had to be tested and prove their right to the throne. And the heroes of the Old Testament were put to the test before beginning their ministries as well. Jesus is the servant king. He is in line for the throne. And now he's being tested to prove that he is truly worthy. And what is being put to test here? The short answer? Love. One of the most important and significant prayers in Judaism is called the Shema, and it comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This prayer was frequently read and rehearsed out loud at minimum twice a day. It was on the lips of every Jewish boy, girl, man, and woman. Every single day, they would remind themselves that the Lord God is one, and they would hear it as they said it, and cause their hearts to remember to love him with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their might. And Israel's biggest failure in the Old Testament was the failure to love God. All of their spiritual and ethical dilemmas stemmed from a failure to love God. God, I would suggest the same, that all of our spiritual dilemmas, all of our moral dilemmas, all of the issues that we experience at one point or another stem from a failure to love God, to trust God, to believe God, to surrender ourselves to him and believe that he wills good for us. Grant Osborne points out that these three temptations test Jesus' love for the Father. The first temptation concerns the heart. The second temptation goes after the soul, the life. And the third test, where will strength be found? This is what happens next in verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. As M.J. Wilkins points out, fasting was often used as a means of focusing one's attention in prayer, disciplining oneself to unite body and soul in a concerted effort. Jesus was readying himself, preparing himself for his public ministry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God. The enemy immediately comes in and questions Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God. And, And this is where things get a little bit interesting. The enemy knows that Jesus is the Son of God. God just said out loud, this is my beloved son. I'm sure he heard it. And Carson points out a theologian, the devil does not doubt Jesus' sonship. Rather, he wants to find out what kind of son will Jesus be? Will he be a faithful son? Or will he be one of the sons of old that failed and compromised their faith and call of God? tempter came and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Will Jesus be the conquering king or will he be the suffering servant? Will Jesus use his God power, his divinity to overcome temptation for self-serving ends? Or will he lay down his power and enter into the suffering that you and I experience and demonstrate for us what radical dependence upon God can look like? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. There's nothing wrong with what the enemy is asking of Jesus. After all, Jesus turning bread into stones, uh, uh, turning stones into bread is easy. We've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him multiply bread and fish and feed the thousands. The question is not capability. We know that Jesus is capable. The temptation at hand is the human desire for self sufficiency. Will he depend on the Father? Or will he be self-sufficient for himself? Will he take matters into his own hands? Or will he trust that God has a plan and purpose for his life? And what does Jesus show us? He shows us that living outward and surrendered and being dependent upon the Father is far better than inward self-sufficiency. Jesus models and shows us a trust in the father, that the father is trustworthy and he is sufficient and he is and he will provide. And in this case, where does Jesus find nourishment and strength? In God's very word. He says in verse four, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Outward obedience towards the Father will always be more satisfying and fulfilling than inward self-sufficiency. Positioning ourselves in the posture of surrender before the Father will always take us farther, farther than taking matters into our own hands and trying to forge a future for ourselves. Recalling God's faithfulness, as Jesus did, is more fulfilling and productive Then forging a future and planning an escape from your problems out of your own strength. And Jesus shows us that where Israel failed to love God and have a heart that hungers for him and trusts him, he succeeded as his heart is set towards the father regardless of earthly needs. The second temptation, the devil took him to the holy city and set set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Where where does this come from? What's happening here? The the devil is misquoting Psalm 91, attempting to get Jesus to throw himself down and move God's hand to rescue him and save him from death. Uh, Here, the enemy is practicing one of his oldest tricks, misusing and manipulating God's word. Because what we come to find out after a careful study of Psalm 91 is that it never implies that God will send protecting care for any and every harmful situation. Jesus knows this because he's a student of scripture and he sees through the devil's manipulation and the Twisting of God's word, and he replies again with a quote from Deuteronomy in verse 7 Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The enemy tests Jesus' safety and his desire to save his own soul, to save his own life, and whether he will follow God, even if it means losing his life. And where Israel failed in trusting God for their very lives, Jesus succeeds and he teaches us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Trusting the Father with your life, come what may, is the most secure place that we can find ourselves in. The third temptation, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. This is getting kind of old. We know that Jesus is the God-man, that he can resist temptation. But Jesus' ultimate purpose was to gather the nations into the kingdom of God. But to do that, he would have to suffer execution on the cross. Why? Because his death would tear down the dividing walls of hostility that were caused by sin. And the only unity that can come is the unity that is mended by Jesus. The devil offers a shortcut for his suffering. You want the kingdoms of the world? You can have them. Under one condition, you must uh, worship me, bow down to me. But Jesus is a student of scripture. And he knows that worship is to be given only to God. So he counters the devil's temptation with a final quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Then he said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve where Israel failed to be faithful to God and worship him alone. And we see this pattern in the Old Testament constantly. Their hearts desire for something and they turn to other gods to meet their needs where they failed to give their hearts solely to God and be in relationship with him. Jesus succeeds, resolving to draw strength from God alone rather than seeking to rule the world by himself. And in verse 11, the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What is Jesus? us doing he is showing us that he is truly the suffering servant who succeeds where we fail so that you and i can find success not by trying to muster up our own strength out of our own will but drawing near to him and trusting him the way he trusts the father last question where is he taking us What often happens when we read this story is we immediately begin to insert ourselves into the story and imagine ourselves going toe-to-toe with the enemy and implementing the same strategy Jesus used to fend off the devil. And we find ourselves just trying to pick a battle that we think we can win because we see how Jesus did it, so I'm going to do the same thing. Been there, done that. And, and although there's some truth to that, although there's some like practical application that we can glean from Jesus, uh, this story is more than a set of instructions for what to do when you experience temptation. This moment in history did not take place so we can solely know what to do when we face temptation. There is something far better here. Hear me, church. This moment took place so we can know what kind of king Jesus is. Jesus just received clear vision of his mission and how is Jesus going to carry it out? Is he going to be the conquering king who takes matters into his own hands and just flippantly uses his power to get what he wants? Or is he going to be the suffering king, the suffering servant who enters into our human condition and shows us how to live in the midst of our brokenness? Will Jesus take the long road of obedience to the throne or will he bypass the suffering and take the role of son and king without suffering hardship? Will he exalt himself as king or lay down his life and take a crown of thorns? This story answers what kind of king is Jesus? And depending on how we answer that question for ourselves will truly determine the quality of our discipleship and how we are following him and where he is taking us. This story is here to remind you and I that we serve and follow a suffering servant, the servant king. And what does this mean for us? It means that we recalibrate our expectations for following Jesus against his suffering and against his service. We don't calibrate uh, our expectations for following Jesus against our own success and what it means to experience all sorts of provision and favor. That's not what we see Jesus doing here. We measure our life against his suffering and his service. And when we do that, he promises to be with us. And it's through suffering and it's through serving that God grows us into all that he's called us to be. And when we align ourselves to the best version of Jesus that we can imagine and the best version of ourselves, we end up brutally disappointed because we're trying to follow Jesus to a place that he was never taking us. This story means that we recalibrate our expectations for following Jesus against his suffering and his service. What does this mean? You will suffer when you follow Jesus. What does that not mean? God is not displeased with you. What does this mean? Becoming like Jesus means serving the least of these and giving our hearts towards others and only in laying our down our lives down for our neighbor and loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind can we love others in return. And that the way up in the kingdom is not uh, grasping for power and control and identity and success here, it's by laying light, our lives down for the sake of others. Jesus shows us that the way of the kingdom is serving. And it's not God's design for us to suffer, but in a world that is scarred by sin, hear me, suffering will be inevitable. But when in the event that obedience leads us to experience suffering, it is not God's displeasure towards us. And hear me, church, suffering can serve as a place of encountering God's grace, not growing distant from it. The scripture offers what's called guaranteed areas of encounter. Places where you will experience the living God. And one of them is suffering. That when you suffer for King Jesus, he is with you. He draws near to you. He encounters you. And what the world would try to pit against you and say that, that your suffering and that your hardships and that all the, the displeasure you're experiencing in your life is a quality is, is a reflection of your quality of relationship with God or the God that you're serving, he doesn't care about you. Jesus shows us that he can use the suffering that this world brings to make us more like him. And it can be a place where we experience God's grace and become more like him. This wilderness experience is private to Jesus. But his victory over the temptation of the enemy is now something that we can all share publicly. And his victory over the enemy is how we frame our suffering against his suffering, how we frame our hardships against his hardships. So in understanding Jesus' story, we can find help for our own temptations. And that's why the author in Hebrew says in verse 2, 17 through 18, therefore, he had to be made, be made like his brothers in every respect, so that we might become, uh, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, to make propitiation for the sins of all people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you feel tempted? Do you feel suffering? Jesus can give you help. Jesus provides for you grace in your time of need. So much so that uh, the author of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. What good is that if he can't sympathize with our weakness? But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So as we embark on this special season of recalibrating our hearts and examining our walk with Jesus, what expectations needs needs to be adjusted? What false ideas about his lordship needs to be let go? And what is he calling us to be obedient to and trust him in? To rephrase the questions, what kind of king are you following right now? What is he desiring to do in your life through suffering? And where is he wanting to take you in your relationship with him? Let's close in prayer as we reflect on this.